You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insight. It's Diversity Straight Up with your hosts, Sadika Vodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting and Anthony Arrington of Top Rank Professional and Executive Search Firm. Diversity Straight Up is a Corridor Business Journal podcast brought to you by Collins Aerospace, Alliant Energy, and the City of Cedar Rapids. On today's episode, Dr. Tawan Wilson, Associate Vice President for Inclusive Excellence and Chief Diversity Officer at Georgia Southern University. We have people who are thinking about, you know, academic affairs from the standpoint of being a provost every day. Someone should absolutely be at that table who's thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and more appropriately, inclusive excellence. And I just can't imagine an institution being successful without engagement in this functional area as well. We'll be right back. At Collins Aerospace, we believe that fostering an inclusive environment makes our employees feel valued. It also helps our business succeed. By encouraging diverse viewpoints in the workplace, we're redefining futures. It's why we proudly support the Corridor Business Journal's diversity podcast, Diversity Straight Up. Diversity Straight Up is sponsored by the city of Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids is a welcoming and vibrant city, encompassing unique attractions, exciting and diverse events, specialty shopping, a dynamic art scene, and a large variety of restaurant and nightlife options. You'll find that Cedar Rapids offers one of the best places to live, work, and play in the Midwest. Listeners, we are getting ready to get real and under the hood with Dr. Tuan Wilson, Associate Vice President, Inclusive Excellence, and Chief Diversity Officer at Georgia Southern University. But before we get to him, something's on my mind, Anthony. Something's on my mind. Well, with the coronavirus, there's a lot that's going on in my mind that we are all frankly coping with. And... I really think that this is a time more than ever to be discussing equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement, because the way we do business, how we go about our daily lives have been flip-flopped. And when you think about equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement, from which businesses are being closed to working remotely, social distancing, I cannot think of how these four topics are not at top of mind for businesses today. I couldn't agree more, Sarah. Good. I've been wrestling with this, and you know this, in terms of um, the work that we do, and for many others um, in this industry, and I know we are in disaster mode, but when you're thinking about how are people feeling engaged, how are they really um, looking at um, uh, equitable solutions, and I know that we'll be talking to our guests a little bit more down the road, because it would be remiss of us as co-host of this podcast to not really talk about this. How are you feeling? I agree, Serica. It's for me, it's it's been uh to be very frank a bit emotional. Um it's been it's been tough as I think about the inequities that that I that I'm seeing now and some of the the comments and, and things that are coming out, you know, and um partic- I've been particularly, you know, um disturbed um by the Chinese virus comments that have started to um, 
percolate uh, in the vernacular, and I, I I see the emotions it's it's causing. I see the the challenges um, that it's bringing in terms of conversation and and um, all those little trigger points um, become catalysts and become um, topics uh, of discussion, and they and they all revolve around diversity and and uh, equity. Uh, amongst human beings when you when you think about it and so uh, it's it's been tough and I I agree and I know you know it's um it's it's difficult for what we do in our works Setica because it you know we're we understand what it's 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 like to live in a world of inequity uh, from 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 where we sit uh as minorities and it's when you when you hear those things, it's you have to compartmentalize your your emotions when you talk about it, or it becomes a challenge. And so for me, it's been heavy on my mind. It's been something I'm I'm, I'm working on, um, and and I hope that I can uh, continue to be a rational human being about this entire process. But it, it's been a bit of a challenge. Okay, well, I appreciate you sharing this. And actually, I don't look at myself as a minority in this because if anything, it has brought awareness that. A pandemic like this, it really shows that we are really globalized. We are operating in a global um, fashion. So we're global citizens. It's interesting. And with technology, it is really connecting us more globally. And so I really look at, we talk about drivers of diversity are globalization, technology, and demographic shifts. Yeah. And now more than ever, we're seeing that more prevalent. I guess I do agree with you that when you think about terms that are being used right now, can it lead to more increase in xenophobic actions? Um, so like the Chinese virus or the Kung flu or any of those terminology. And I know that I've had to look inside of myself when I'm on these group chats with friends or associates or whatever. And I have to think about, you know, am I just being a bystander and taking these jokes or do I have to be an active bystander, which I am, and continue to be an upstander and make comments that this is not right and it could lead to additional discrimination and as a global citizen i will stand up for anybody that you know is uh, being isolated in that kind of a way well you can tell that it was something that was definitely on my mind so we could have lots of conversations and i know that we will continue to have more of these but we have an amazing guest today, so let's go ahead and get to our guest. We have uh, Dr. Tuan Wilson. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. First of all, would you like us to call you Dr. Wilson or Tuan? Please call me Tuan. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, listeners, I want to share a little bit about our guest uh, Dr. Tuan Wilson, he's an Arkansas native in the United States with 13 years experience in higher education, serving in administration and faculty roles. He currently serves as the inaugural Associate Vice President for Inclusive Excellence and Chief Diversity Officer at Georgia Southern University. He is the former Special Assistant for External Relations and Associate Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer at the University of Iowa. Dr. Wilson has also served as an assistant professor and the executive director of student programs and student diversity at the Medical University of South Carolina, the executive director of TRIO programs and multicultural student retention, and the interim executive director of multicultural programs at Missouri State University. I could go on and on and on. These are just a few to name as his bio is truly impressive. 
Tawan, welcome again to our show. Thank you. Great, great. So let's get under the hood. We're about to have some real, real conversation with Tawan, and, and I hope our listeners in, enjoy the conversation today. What's on our guest's mind? Tawan, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about uh, you know, your, your work in the space, in the diversity and equity inclusion space. And you've got a great career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, as you guys mentioned, have been in the field of higher education for 13 years. I uh, grew up you know, South Arkansas, practically Louisiana. I was a first-generation college graduate from a low-income background, um, and I think those experiences really shaped me. Um, I am a proud product of federal trio programs like Federal Talent Search, uh, Upward Bound, uh, Student Support Services, and McNair. Um, and so just navigating higher education as a first-gen low-income student really fueled my passion to jump into this work as a professional uh, and to drive strategy around diversity, equity, and inclusion on behalf of institutions. I am brand new to my role at Georgia Southern University. Uh, this is actually my third official week here. Um, and it's been really interesting, as you guys know, <laughs> uh, jumping right in into the mix of coronavirus or COVID-19 right. has been uh, quite interesting. I'm really proud of my institution and how we've navigated all of this together. Um, specifically, I always think about everything from the lens of equity. Um, and so we were really mindful and intentional about how we worked with students who, for example, uh, housing. Um, you know, I remind people all the time that for some university students, college is their home. Uh, for various reasons, they may not have another place to return to. I'm really proud that as an institution, we were thinking about that before I could even get it out of my mouth. Um, and we've been really mindful and intentional about allowing students who don't have another home to go to a place to stay on our campus. And so we have over 200 students between our three campuses here uh, who will be allowed to stay um, through May, uh, which is fantastic. You know, I think about it also from the standpoint of access to technology as we shift to an online platform. Um, you know, a good reminder for folks is not every student has access to internet, um, has access to the resources in order to be successful at home or from wherever they may be as we navigate this online virtual platform. We've been super intentional about that, even going as far as providing laptops and internet access to our students who may have that need. Um, you know, with respect to finances, of course, all students across the country are on edge, you know, asking themselves questions about Am I going to receive a refund from my institution? And if so, what might that refund actually look like? Um, we've been, again, super intentional about that. And we're getting ready to cascade information to our student body about what their refunds will look like. Um, and then we've also been super thoughtful about students who actually worked on campus. You know, uh, their livelihood depends on their on-campus employment. And so we're even allowing opportunities for students who um, you know, this is their job, this is their place, and while their offices may be closed right now um, or moving to remote work, we're also allowing our student employees the opportunities to work from home um, or to work in another office that may still have limited operations as well. Um, and so that's what's happening in my world. It's taking care of students, uh, being intentional and thoughtful as we navigate these unchartered territories together. Um, but again, I'm really pleased to work at an institution that's thinking about that before I can even mention it. And that's refreshing for me. You know, that's really, that's a really, it's really glad to hear that. Um, you actually took a question that I was going to ask you. So that's <laughs> it's a wonderful thing because Seneca and I have been having that conversation uh, as we've continued to hear in our circles and in, in the news, just about equity, right? 
Um, and uh, we wanted to get your perspective from academia when it comes to what's happening with the coronavirus and and what are organizations, institutions, and, and people doing to make sure there's equitable access. Um, because I think there's there's often that difference, Tawan, between what folks understand as equal access and, and equity. Um, I think some individuals, fair or unfair, think they're being um, equitable think they're being equitable by, by saying everybody we're giving everybody equal access to x whether it be technology or or you can stay in the dorms but there's deeper issues behind an, an individual's ability to do that depending on where you come from and so i'm really glad to hear that uh your institution is creating really proactive about uh, creating equitable practices in in terms of how you're dealing with the virus definitely definitely inclusive excellence is actually one of our strategic pillars um, in our plan for the institution. It's actually pillar three. We've put it right in the middle of everything that we do as a reminder that it impacts all that we are and all that we hope to be as we move forward. And so again, Georgia Southern is, is right on top of it and pleased to work with some amazing leaders around this. Well, great conversation uh, from both of you, Tawan and Anthony. For our listeners though, I really want to help um, set up the narrative and differentiate what equity and equality is because it's extremely crucial. Equality and equity, they seem very similar in concept, but they're very different. Equality can be defined in, you know, when you think about it, in the simplest term as same, whereas equity can be defined as what is fair, what is just. And I've had someone explain this to me before and it was really easy way for me to comprehend. It's been said that equity is a process inequality is the outcome. And I always take that into mind, um, and I, I'm a track runner, so I always use this example that when I was first doing my mile meet, I was in the inner circle all the way in back, and I was looking ahead of me, and I would see people that were ahead, far up in the track. And I was thinking in my head, wait a minute, that's not fair, that person is gonna beat me to the finish line. And in reality, the way they had it staggered, it was creating those equitable processes so that we all had the fair opportunity to get to the finish line. That's exactly right. You know, um, I think you're spot on, Sierra. Equity, of course, is, is different than equality in that equality implies that you treat everyone the same, right? Yep. Um, and then as we mm -hmm. talk about equity, more specifically, we're addressing structural inequalities whether they be historic or current, right? Um, that gives some folks an advantage and, and put other folks at a disadvantage. And so it's really important to think about that. Um, and I would say that that's the core of the work that I do as a higher ed professional is always addressing that specifically. You know, how do we engage in that with some intentionality to ensure that folks have, you know, the opportunity not just to survive in a particular environment, but I always talk about, I want my students I want the faculty that I serve, I want the staff that I serve to thrive. And I think that we do that as we yeah. think about, you know, measures of equality. Yeah. yeah. So in your experience in higher ed, as you've had 13 years experience here, I'm sure it's different from each institution to another. But what are some of the common thread that you have seen around equity? You talk a lot about the systems and processes that you have noticed have been very similar in all of the academia and something that you're very passionate about to continue to move the dial forward a little bit more. Sure. So I think that every institution where I've been employed um, has kind of jumped on board. You know, chief diversity offices in higher education 
Um, they vary as far as the length of time that they've been around. Some institutions have been doing this work for 15 or 20 years now. Other institutions are just getting started as they think about having a CDO. Uh, but I think we're all getting to the same space, which is really encouraging. I think most folks are also thinking strategically about how they embed inclusive excellence or diversity, equity, and inclusion into their strategic plans, uh, which I think is fantastic. That's our end goal, right, is to allow this work mm -hmm. to inform everything else that we do. Um, you know, I've had the pleasure of serving, I think, at seven institutions now. Um, and my career, you know, dates back to about 07, 08 at this point. And so I think the first institution that I was employed at uh, where I heard about a chief diversity officer uh, was actually probably Missouri State University. Um, during my time there, I had the pleasure of working for the institution's first vice president for diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, the institution had not at that time embedded diversity, equity, or inclusion into the strategic plan, but they knew that it was important, right? Uh, some of the things that we, you know, supervise and manage as chief diversity officers in higher education, it varies tremendously. Um, but some of the things that are typically in that portfolio include things like Title IX and ADA and EEO and all of the compliance pieces. Anything that's generally going to be student facing, like federal trio programs, multicultural resource centers, uh, veteran student support services, um, diversity, equity and inclusion training units, um, you know, black male mentoring initiatives is something that I have a huge passion around and I've been able to manage in different spaces. But that's typically the suite of programs and services that a CDO manages. Um, not every institution allows that to be managed in the same way. And I think that's okay, um, especially for institutions that are kind of new um, at this game, right? Uh, but I think what I see most commonly is that we are at least talking about it. Now, to what extent we're actually engaging um, actively and to what extent some institutions are really serious about it, um, it varies, right? Some institutions are checking a box. Mm -hmm. um, other institutions like Georgia Southern have really embedded it into practice and it informs everything that we do as an institution. And so, um, obviously, my preference is to work at institutions that are serious, right? Um, and we're actually moving mm -hmm. things forward, but I've certainly seen variance in, in that as well. Uh, some states funding um, opportunities are attached to measures of equity and inclusion. Um, and so I've certainly, as I've consulted, you know, at a national level, I've certainly worked with institutions that are not necessarily engaging in this work because they really believe in it. Uh, but they're engaging in this work because it's attached to their funding. Right. And sometimes making the business case around diversity is the only way to get people engaged in this work. And whatever it takes is my response to that, right? And so that we can start thinking about it. If the business case is the case that we have to make to get folks thinking about it, how do we then incorporate that and embed it into practice in ways that allow people to actually see the true benefit of engaging in this work. I'm a firm believer that everyone has a connection to the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. My job as a CDO um, is really to empower people and help them identify what their connection, what their touch point is to engage in this work as well. I agree with you, Tawan, that however it inspires and engages people to want to get on this journey, whether it's the business case or if it's the heart, empowering them to do so uh, is is critical. And I look at um, your background, you're a first generation low income black individual who is in academia. 
you in and of itself as an individual is a very um, powerful representative role model. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting navigating higher education um, as a young, I mean, I'm, I'm 33 years old as well. Um, and this is, you know, again, year 13. So I came out of undergrad at 20 years old and jumped right into higher education. And so it's, it's been interesting to navigate, um, you know, issues of bias, issues of, of discrimination, um, even as an individual um, coming up through the ranks in this work. Um, I've benefited tremendously from some great mentors who've looked out for me in ways that um, I will never be able to repay them, um, you know, external to my work situations. But I've never actually had the pleasure of working for a mentor. I've never been handed a job because I knew someone uh, that was never privileged experienced in that way, um, in, in the way that some folks enjoy um, their careers. That that has certainly not been my story, but I'm grateful for every moment. I got into this work to drive strategy and change around diversity, equity, inclusion for those who are underrepresented, uh, those folks who are minorities, those folks who have often been um, excluded and didn't have a seat at the table. Um, and so um, the last six or so months for me as a professional has really been about re-anchoring myself in this work um, and, and thinking more strategically about what I need um, as an employee, as an individual, as, as a man of color navigating these spaces, um, and, and not so much what is the salary, right, and, and, and things of that nature, but really where am I going to be positioned for impact? Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you, it's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, it's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at alliantenergy.com careers. But you're, you're at a position now where you are sitting, you know, what I would say at, at the top, so to speak. In other words, you've got a seat in the president's cabinet. And I want to loop back to your conversation about powering and empowering because Sarah and I always, we always talk about the importance of having uh, someone at the executive table in the sweet suite when it comes to this di- diversity position. And you, you, you made some great comments about your experience at, at multiple institutions and how you see some institutions are more serious about it and, and others aren't. And it's Seneca and I's belief that institutions that really demonstrate how serious they are, it often is demonstrated in where this CDO is placed, where that diversity officer is sitting, inside or outside of that suite uh, of decision making. And we've seen the difference uh, in organizations and their progress based on where that, that person is. And, and in doing some research, you know, I was reading a Bloomberg business article from March 2019, and it was based on some surveys by uh, Russell Reynolds Associates. And, and their survey showed that a little more than half of large U.S. companies or organizations still do not have an executive dedicated to diversity. And, and, and those that do, among those that do, most say that their goals are, are not a priority. It's not a, it's not a priority on the list. And so my question to you is, in your role, in your experience, have you seen the difference in terms of your ability to affect change and I know you're new in the C-suite where you are now, in the president's cabinet where you are now, but talk to me about your belief or your experience of, of an individual's ability 
as a diversity executive to affect change based on where they are in the organization. If they're not in that C-suite where they get to make decisions versus take orders. Absolutely. Uh, That was one of my top priorities was, first of all, identifying an institution that understood the structure that was necessary in order to really drive change around this work. Um, But even more importantly than that, it was identifying leadership that value diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think if your leadership is, is dynamic around this, then they understand the positioning. And I think it all goes hand in hand. But I was even more interested in finding um, a president or a leader or a CEO of an organization that uh, values this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but yes, uh, structure matters, support matters. I've been able to, in three short weeks, um, have conversations um, that have been at a completely different level. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to sit down with all of my other senior leaders at the institution and, and talk to them about their commitment to the work of inclusive excellence. Um, I've been able to have dynamic conversations with my president around this, and I know that he's all in. I've been able to sit down and meet with deans and and talk about you know strategy. Um, and from a positional standpoint, right, people are more inclined to kind of follow your lead when you are sitting at the executive level table. Um, and so it, it absolutely matters and it's critical for success. Can you share a little bit about if you were at the table as some of these other areas, or maybe in past, uh, you know, life and other roles, if you were at the table, would the outcomes have been different on some of the initiatives that you were going for? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, having a seat at the table is is absolutely everything. I always tell people there's far too much at stake, right? This is never about me as an individual and just where I would like to be positioned personally. This is really about strategic change. Um, if institutions say that they value diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and of course, if you engage in those things appropriately, then you achieve inclusive excellence, right? My title here is Associate VP for Inclusive Excellence and Chief Diversity Officer. So we've said that we would like to practice tenets of inclusive excellence. That That's big. That's, that's a huge task, right? Uh, that means that we first achieve diversity, um, equity, and inclusion to then achieve inclusive excellence. And so in order to drive that type of change for such a large, complex organization, um, for example, Georgia Southern University, uh, we have about 26,000 students across three campuses, right? Um, it, it takes a lot of work and dedication and support and resources in order to really drive change around something like this. And so um, I've been at institutions where I've you know, not been a CDO, right? I've been an executive director reporting up to a CDO, uh, but I've still had that individual's ear and that individual has had the ear of the president or of other senior leaders. And we've been equally successful in those spaces, right? It's really about in my mind, kindness and respect and, and, and appropriate engagement with folks. And so even if you're not sitting at the senior leader's table because it's just not your time to be in that space yet, um, it's really important to have a senior leader still at that table and one that you have a great relationship with so that you can still get things done and you know that you have an advocate in that space because it's important, right? We have folks who think about business and finance every day. We have people who think about HR every day. We have people who think about student affairs every day. 
We have people who are thinking about, you know, academic affairs from the standpoint of being a provost every day. Someone should absolutely be at that table who's thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and more appropriately, inclusive excellence. And I just can't imagine an institution being successful without engagement in this functional area as well. As I look at university strategic plans, I always tell people you will only be successful uh, with respect to things like student success and community engagement and a lot of the buzzwords that we put into strategic plans. You're only going to be successful with respect to those things to the extent that you're also successful with things like diversity, equity, and more appropriately, inclusion as well. A lot of times there could be, you know, perception out there that all of this work needs to be driven and it's the sole responsibility of the chief diversity officer, the chief inclusion officer. What can you share with our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. So no, I I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, This work belongs to every member of a learning community. Um, And we are very clear about that, you know, as we look at national strategies around uh, competencies for chief diversity officers. One of the top things on that list is that this work must be infused in such a way that every member of the learning community understands that they have a connection and they must also make a demonstrated commitment to this work. Um, and that I think there's a fear sometimes that this is forced and it's just an extra layer, right? Oh, I have to go participate in this diversity training. Oh, we've embedded diversity goals into performance evaluations. It's just one more thing, right? Um, But I think more appropriately, it should be woven into the very fabric of everything that we do as an institution. And so I think about what is someone's first touch point to understand that an institution values diversity, equity, and inclusion. And quite frankly, in most cases, we don't do a good job of embedding that. Uh, We don't talk about it in orientation. We're not asking even on the front end of that for a diversity, equity, or an inclusion statement at the time of application as a faculty member and asking them what they can bring to the table with respect to this work in this space. Um, we, we don't do it. We, we tend to be more reactive than proactive, right? We're fixing issues as they come up versus putting strategies in place to, in some ways, mitigate or prevent some of these things from happening in the first place. And so um, the work is, is critical. Um, and I think a good CDO understands that you must, you must um, collaborate with all of your colleagues and you must be able to, again, make the heart case and also the business case around this work. Some people are going to connect to both. Some people are only going to connect to one. Um, yeah, absolutely. You have to be prepared for that, right? Uh, but I think integration into everything that's done on behalf of the institution is important. So I think about it from the standpoint of how do we recruit, how do we retain, and then how do we advance people in this space? A lot of times we're only thinking about recruitment, right? We think about it purely in in numbers. If we just get them to the institution, then we've done something, right? You know, X percentage of our students are students of color. Well, I don't really, you know, care about that as much as I care about how are we engaging with these folks once they get to our institution, right? Are they surviving in this space or are they able to thrive in this space because of the programs and services and support that we provide? The same is true for faculty and staff as well. Um, students nationally all across the country have been asking for their faculty to reflect the diversity of either the student body 
or diversity in some other way. And in many cases, the, the language that we use as CDOs is we want it to reflect the richness of that particular body of research or body of knowledge when we talk about faculty. And so if there are example, 15% of folks um, in bioengineering are African-American, and we know that that number is not accurate, but let's, you know, hypothetically, if that was the case, then we would expect that 15% of our faculty or more also reflects that rich diversity as well. Um, but how are we actually going out and recruiting people? And more importantly, how are we actually retaining people, right? As we think about credit towards tenure and promotion and the invisible labor of engaging in diversity, equity, and inclusion work on campuses all across the country. Um, quite honestly, before, you know, I was a CDO, um, I was, you know, working in retention with students and, you know, laser focus on some of those pieces, but being one of the only African-American males or being one of the only whatever in a particular space, we're often called upon to do a million other things, right? Because they just need a representative at the table who sometimes looks like us. Um, where's the credit uh, for that? How are we accounting for that in terms of performance evaluations, in terms of success, in terms of promotion, in terms of all of the things? That speaks to this notion of your original question and that this work doesn't just belong to the black and brown folks. It just doesn't belong to the people who possess other marginalized identities. It belongs to everyone. And the only way to do that appropriately is to have a full-fledged uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion action plan. Or in our case here, what we're going to be developing is an inclusive excellence action plan, right? Where we embed these goals in such a way and we have a touch point with every central unit, um, every specific academic college, um, in ways that everyone understands their connection. And so some of the things that we'll be talking about is how do we create an inclusive and welcoming environment for everyone, not just students, but also faculty and staff. How do we increase the representation of diverse students, faculty and staff and community partners at all levels of our university? Um, moving beyond that space, right, of representation, how do we facilitate access to achievement, success and recognition for underrepresented students, faculty, staff and alumni? Um, and then how do we implement fully strong, genuine, and consistently communicated culturally inclusive practices uh, that reinforce our university strategic plan, right? So we say that we value this, but how do we actually live that out? That, that becomes really important as well. So that's what we're working on in this space. Well, I want to change gears a minute. Because something you mentioned earlier, um, you've said it a couple of times, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about everybody. But right now, I do want to talk about you, Tuan. Okay. Because <laughs> you, you are in a unique space. And, and as a black man, you're in a unique space. You've ascended to, in the business world, the, the C-suite, so to speak, right? Um, uh, and you're relatively young. You get, again, at 33 years old. Um, but most of your peers, Tawan, are, are older white men. And that's, it's been that way. And you just mentioned that, you know, coming up through your career, being kind of the only one. And so talk to me about how Tawan has navigated this world in this traditional where there's a traditional white male power structure to, to gain the leverage that you needed for decision making as a leader um, and or your own professionalism. So whether it's at Georgia Southern or 10 years ago, but talk to us about your journey um, and how you've been able to navigate around that traditional structure. Sure. To get where you are. Sure. I think, you know, for me, it's all about operating in, in honesty and integrity. Um, and I think that you know, one of the things that God blessed me with is a personality that 
is such that I'm, I'm not a confrontational person. Um, I'm a person who really wants to engage. I want to understand. I want to seek first to understand is, is one of the most important things that I think about as I engage in this work. Um, I personally, um, I, I've, I've never compromised who I am as an individual in order to be in any particular space. And I, I think my career has demonstrated that for folks as well. Um, I, you know, believe in adding value into any particular space that I'm in. And I believe in being honest and being transparent, uh, speaking up um, at the appropriate times, uh, but doing so in a way that moves us forward, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so not so much of complaining um, and saying what's not, but perhaps saying what's not, but then pr providing some tangible solutions for how it could be um, and, and demonstrating the value around particular things. You know, I think about my entire career um, and I've, I've moved around a decent amount. I went to undergrad in Arkansas. I started in higher education in Oklahoma. After finishing my master's degree, I came back to Arkansas briefly. Um, I left Arkansas and I, I lived in Wyoming, of all places, uh, for a bit, um, leading a statewide grant, uh, particularly, specifically, in this case, for students who are on free and reduced lunch to provide them with college access opportunities. Um, I think I've lived my passion and I think when people interact with me and they get to know me um, as an individual, uh, they just understand that I'm here to make things better. I'm here to drive change, but I'm also here to be honest, right? I'm here to challenge and provide the appropriate balance of challenge and support. So Tawan, you, you mentioned uh, you have mentors that you're able to pick up the phone. Your mentors, are they from your similar background as you from a racial ethnic perspective? So most of them are, uh, but I certainly have mentors. One of the exercises that I typically do in diversity training when I'm training folks, and, and we've already done it here at Georgia Southern, and I wasn't the facilitator of this, but we provide kind of a document to folks and we ask them to list out the people that you're closest to and the people that you respect the most, right? And then we wow. flip that sheet back and we ask you to describe who those folks are from a cultural perspective, from an ethnic perspective, um, from a socioeconomic perspective. Um, and I did that exercise years ago, probably 10 or so years ago is the first time that I was introduced to that. Um, and it was eye-opening for me at that time. I was very early in my career, about three or so years in. Um, but I realized at that point in my career, everybody that I trusted, everybody that had my ear um, was an African-American. Um, and there was nothing inherently wrong about that. Uh, but it challenged me to start thinking about diverse perspectives in my own life, uh, fostering friendships and collaborations that go beyond. Uh, because again, as a CDO, you're representing a lot of different constituent groups, right? And even as a CDO, I think it's important for people to remember, we're not experts in everything, right? We're experts in how to drive strategy, but there are things that we don't know. And so we have to engage in continual learning as well. And so it pushed me to start thinking about mentors who represent um, different backgrounds, different cultures. And so from 10 years ago to now, I will tell you that um, probably my, my key mentor, right? My go-to person is still an African-American male, uh, but there are people who represent all ethnicities, all backgrounds on kind of my top 10 list. And I think it just keeps me rounded out as a professional. Yeah, that is so important. And what I what I really like that you, you said there, uh, Tawan, as you really talked about your growth over the last 10 years, your personal growth and your uh, intentionality in having to think outside the box. And, Absolutely. And, 
and come outside of your circle. But it, it took it took some time. It took an assessment tool, or it it took personal realization on your part to do that. And and that's what we try to instill in, in, in folks, and we want our listeners to understand that as well. Is that it's a journey. You're not done, um, but you've learned along the way, and you've been able to uh, to to uh, recognize that. And that's that's important. It is. It really is. And and that's a part of of what I do in this space as well is helping people think about kind of their next steps, right? Their aha moment. We tend to use this phrase of cultural competence, which I personally think is outdated now. Um, I use the language of cultural consciousness, right? which is the understanding and recognition that you have an ongoing obligation to engage in this work, that you'll never be able to go to one or two trainings and walk away and know everything that you need to know, that you're never really competent in this area, but that you're conscious and you're aware um, that things are changing, right? It's a moving scale sometimes and, and engagement must be regular and consistent in order to stay abreast of the issues uh, facing us, especially in this DEI space for sure. Let's switch gears. So I, I, our next segment is really what, what's on our listeners' mind. What's on your mind? Um, we always have a question uh, from one of our listeners um, uh, to, our, to our guests, and we, we like to, to ask those questions. So, um, Tuan, I've got a, a question here from, from Eric, who's been one of our listeners, and he says, I'm a 55-year-old white male. I admit I have not listened to all of your episodes yet, but I noticed in reviewing your list of online episodes that they are only that they are all with older white men and women. What can a 55-year-old white man learn about diversity from other white people? That's a very good question. <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, I, I think that uh, you can learn a lot depending on the individuals. And I haven't listened to all of your previous podcasts either. I do apologize, but. I think you can still learn a lot if those folks are engaged in this work and thinking with some intentionality around how they impact diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as we discussed, quite often, you know, that is the demographic that is running an organization in most cases, right? It's, it's white men. Um, and so if those individuals are thoughtful and intentional and engaged in this work and they're providing strategies and you know, kind of their ideas and thoughts around how you do this and and they get it, then I think you can learn a lot. Um, I, I yeah. would never want to be short-sighted in saying that, you know, a person who possesses a majority identity doesn't have anything to add because I think it goes against the very um, kind of the, the nature of the work, right? If we talk about how this work belongs to everyone, and then we become short-sighted to say that because you're a white male, you can't provide relevant, you know, information. Um, I, I think we're working against each other yeah. in that. I really do. I feel pretty strongly about yeah. that. It's about allyship mm -hmm. and support yeah. and, and all of the things. I have colleagues here um, at my current institution who get it, who, you know, they walk the talk, you know. And yeah. I, I would never say that they're not equipped to provide guidance and feedback and quite Quite frankly, from from white one white male to another, sometimes those messages are more easily communicated um, because they're talking about what they've been able to do from where they sit and in the privileges that they possess, and uh, being sure. able to share that guidance and that wisdom with other you know members of right. the majority, I think has value. I do. Great points. Great yeah. points. And Eric, I want Eric to answer your question. I wanted to, from from Sadika and and my perspective and and 
why you've seen uh, only white men and women at, at this point in our juncture in our episodes. Um, one of the things that, that we believe strongly in, uh, Eric, is that white, we, we know that white men have de- traditionally dominated the power structure uh, in, in America, but we also know that they are white men with power and leverage that care about this space and that have had their own journeys um, because diversity is not just owned by one race or one gender or one ethnicity. And it's important that, that white leaders understand that they are diverse individuals in terms of the traditional word, but they have privilege. And how are they using their privilege? How have they realized their privilege uh, through their journeys? And how they use that to leverage this space as, as white men and, and women? Um, to know that they have a role, that they play an important part in this growth and progression. And so, so Eric, that is one of the reasons that we believe we, we definitely have to have conversations with, with white men at the table, at the C-suite table, and white women at the C-suite table, um, because they have a story to tell as well, and it's important that we hear that story. And so wanted to make sure we, we put that in, in context in terms of, uh, I hope that answers your question. Well, thank you, Eric, for submitting that. All right. Well, we are all recording this virtual here, but that does not mean that we cannot have fun with one of our most fun segments of our show, and that is our diversity thumbball. A diversity thumbball is like a big, soft soccer ball, has a lot of questions around it, and um, the intent is to throw it at someone, and wherever their thumb lands on the question, they have to ask the question, I mean, they have to read the question, and then they have to respond to the question. So since we're all doing this virtually, a couple of us have our diversity thumb balls here. We'll go ahead and throw it up in the air, and then we will go ahead and do that for each of us. Does that work? So Anthony, do you want to start first? That sounds good. So Tawan, you pretend like you're catching a ball as I'm throwing it to you. That's a remote. If you were, if we were in the studio together, I'd be tossing this ball across the table to you, and you. My hands are up, man. I'm ready. <laughs> so I'm throwing the ball in the air, and I'm going to send this question to you first, Tawan. And my thumb landed on. Share a time when you went out of your way to make someone feel included. Um, I'm going to go and jump to a particular situation or example from my time at the Medical University of South Carolina. Um, we are, you know, at that time and will always be a predominantly white institution there at NUSC. Um, one of the things that I learned very quickly was that we were not engaging with our students of color uh, from the standpoint of orientation as well as we could have or should have. Um, and so I was meeting with lots of students one-on-one, providing them with some additional resources and guidance, um, you know, around how to maximize their learning experience, you know, at this PWI, MUSC. Um, And so one of the things that I decided I wanted to do uh, was I wanted to create uh, an orientation program that was specific for students of color at the university um, that was above and beyond their traditional orientation experience. Um, And so we did, we called it more or multicultural orientation and resources for excellence. And it was kind of birthed out of this whole notion that um, students of color need additional support. Um, And so we provided um, additional resources, opportunities, scholarships, financial assistance, particularly to students of color at the institution. Uh, It's a program that they still continue to this day. 
that has been uh, really dynamic and has received rave reviews. Um, I think about more personal examples um, of students um, who, you know, were kind of on the margins of campus life and, uh, you know, first gen, low income, not really sure how to integrate into campus community. Um, you know, I've been the person who will go the extra mile in making sure that students do feel included um, by bringing them in, you know, introducing them, kind of just taking that extra step, that extra leap uh, to integrate them. Um, I think about a particular student leader who was African-American male. He started um, first semester med school, uh, wanted to go home. Um, he was, you know, one of maybe five or six African-American males in his College of Medicine cohort uh, for this incoming year and just felt like he did not belong. Um, he just did not want to be um, in the university space. And I was able to work with this young man, introduce him to some of my own personal friends who are African-American male physicians um, so that he would have an extra layer of support um, as he navigated medical school. One of the things he said to me is, Dr. Wilson, I've never met another African-American male physician. And so he was trying to become somebody um, that he had never actually seen a model for himself um, outside of, you know, maybe some higher level celebrity type folks or, you know, people that you see on TV, but he had never actually met an African-American male physician. And so I connected him with actually five different friends of mine so that he would have kind of some built-in support, mentorship, and guidance. Um, and now he is actually graduating from medical school this year. He just matched at Duke uh, for his residency. Um, he's going to be an OBGYN. And, and so I just think about the difference that that probably made for him uh, to kind of wrap him and clothe him in support that he needed in order to be successful. So. Great story, great story, and, and a great example of your leadership. That's really nice. Okay, I'm going to throw this ball again. And, Sedek, oh, I'm throwing it to you. You are. I you have ready? my own ball I was going to throw. Okay. Oh, okay, you throw your ball then. <laughs> All right. Okay. What early messages did you receive about your identity? So as an immigrant, I came to America and uh, some of the places that I had the opportunity to live in, whether in Oklahoma or Nebraska or even in um, Illinois, the places that I was in, I was probably the only Indian there. So one of my earlier messages that I received was in school from my classmates. I think I was in Illinois in the Quad Cities during elementary. And um, I had one of the boys ask me a question. And his question was, are you a dot head or featherhead Indian? What kind of an Indian are you? Wow. And I have to be wow. honest, I had no idea what he was asking. First of all, I had no idea what a dot head was or even a featherhead. So, that was one of my earlier messages about my identity and who I am. And it wasn't until later out, later on did I have an understanding, comprehension, that the dot head was meant for the symbol of a bindi that Indian women or, you know, South Asian women put on their forehead. And then featherhead for Native Americans. All right. 
Okay, I'm going to throw the ball to myself here. And now I'll ask myself a question. And my thumb lands on, describe an important aspect of your identity. Huh. Hmm. Seen a theme um, here. You know, I like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to self-describe myself right now, I guess, as an intersectional person of identity. I say that because I, I think it's important that people uh, see me as a black man. But what they don't see is also I'm a black man with a disability. I have two artificial legs below the knee. Uh, I've been an amputee for 30 plus years. Uh, I'm married to a white woman. Uh, I've been married for 23 years and I have two biracial children. And so I think it's when I'm in this space of diversity, equity, inclusion and engagement, I'm really in this space. And, and I think it's important that people know that about me and it's an important aspect of of my identity that uh, what you see on the outside is not is not everything about about a person and so uh, so yeah that's an important aspect of my identity I think I'm an intersectional person absolutely man thanks for sharing that Anthony thank you so much for sharing we've had many conversations about this and um, you're very brave for being able to share um, who you are and yes there's more than what the book image is all about. And i um, proud of you for doing this. Thank you, thank you. All right. Well, as we wrap this up here, Tawan, are there any pieces of advice, one or two, that you can give our listeners to help them enhance their journey so that they can continue to be authentic leaders and uh, achieve inclusive excellence? Absolutely. I would just simply say to understand that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Um, and with that being said, you know, even myself as a CDO and as someone who's operated in this space for 13 years, you know, I'm courageous enough to say that I don't know everything. Right. And if I don't know everything, um, lots of other people don't as well. No one really knows everything. And so we must be um, super committed to staying engaged, uh, to pushing beyond the bounds. Um, into understanding that um, things are changing and we have to keep up with that. And so look for opportunities for engagement, look for diversity, equity, inclusion, um, engagement training opportunities um, and participate actively. Uh, be honest, be courageous, um, try to find folks who think differently than you um, and bring them into your circle of trust um, so that you're consistently challenged and that you can be better as you forge ahead. Insightful advice for our listeners. Thank you, Tawan. We appreciate it. And thank you so much for giving up your time today uh, to Anthony and I and for the podcast. We hope you enjoyed your experience. I did. Thank you guys again for the opportunity. I appreciate and admire the work that you're doing. Well, that wraps up our uh, latest episode of Diversity Straight Up. We got under the hood a little bit and uh, hope everybody enjoyed themselves. to our listeners as we wouldn't be here without your support help us grow our subscriber base by sharing our show with others love this episode of diversity straight up then head over to the most popular podcast audio platforms to describe rate and review us and check out our other episodes while you're there catch us on our next episode of diversity straight up which drops monthly we'd love to hear from you hit us up and send your questions comments and suggestions to info at diversity CBJ's Diversity Straight Up is brought to you by Collins Aerospace, City of Cedar Rapids, and Alliant Energy. It was produced by Joe Coffee of Coffee Grande Studios. 
Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. It's not enough to simply be a leader. Be a global leader by leveraging diversity with equity, inclusion, and engagement. And share your journey. This may empower others to be bold change agents. Be courageous. Be authentic. Be vulnerable. Diversity straight up. Keeping it real.